Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week, you and I take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. On today's episode, I speak with a man who should be as much a household name as the organization he ran for 23 years. However, you may be more likely to confuse Ira Glasser, my guest today, with Ira Glass, the host of the popular radio show This American Life. And that's a shame, because Ira Glasser is perhaps the most important civil liberties figure of the last 50 years. He ran the American Civil Liberties Union as its executive director from 1978 to 2001. And in the process, he transformed it from a $4 million mom-and-pop style operation with offices in just a few cities to a civil liberties juggernaut with an annual budget of $45 million, a $30 million endowment, staffed offices in every state and Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, and he expanded programs in communications, education, and lobbying. When Ira took over the ACLU in 1978, the ACLU wasn't the household name it is today. Many people didn't understand what it did, and the organization was facing a serious financial crisis. In December 1978, the ACLU was more than $150,000 in debt, and this despite layoffs and cutbacks. It had no financial reserves either to meet its $4 million annual budget. I feel comfortable right now in saying that the reason you know of the ACLU today is because of Ira Glasser. To say Ira is a hero of mine would be an understatement. He's a non-lawyer who ended up leading one of the country's premier civil liberties organizations to towering heights. This week is the 50th anniversary of when Ira started with the ACLU on May 1st, 1967. He started working within its New York affiliate, the New York Civil Liberties Union. In 2001, Ira retired from the ACLU. In the press release announcing his retirement, they quoted him as saying that retirement for me does not mean a change of career. It means the end of work. Ira wanted to spend more time with his wife, with his kids, and with his grandkids, and he wanted to go to more New York Mets baseball games. And while Ira's largely stepped away from the spotlight, He does write the occasional article for the Huffington Post and currently serves as the president of the board of directors for the Drug Policy Alliance. As I was preparing for this podcast, I was struck by how little information there is about Ira on the internet. Of course, it makes sense. He did retire just as the internet of things was beginning to hit its stride. But the lack of information online about this seminal civil liberties figure made me feel as though doing this podcast was even more important. However, it made it more challenging. Because there wasn't too much information about Ira online, I called up some of his friends and former colleagues to try and figure out what I should ask him about. They provided me with good information, but they also further impressed upon me the importance of Ira to the cause of freedom in America. One person I spoke with said that there hasn't really been anybody like Ira in the civil liberties movement since he retired. I was also told that Ira is a forceful guy and that talking with him is as much a conversation as it is an intervention in his monologue. 
That insight certainly held true during our two-hour conversation that you will hear today, but I was happy to sit back and learn from the master. There's much we can all learn from Ira. Whether you are a civil liberties activist or just someone looking to pick up tips on effective management strategy, Ira is a fountain of knowledge. He told me in running an organization, structure is often substance, and that an organization's infrastructure needs to be sound in order to succeed. I was also struck by his view that his role at the ACLU needed to be more akin to that of an orchestra conductor rather than a first violinist. Ira Glasser was born in New York City, still lives in New York City, so we spoke together in New York City last month. This podcast is longer than usual, but I think necessarily so. During the first half of the show, we talk about Ira's path to the ACLU, and it was a very unlikely path. And that path ran through Ebbets Field in Brooklyn with Jackie Robinson, all the way through to Robert Kennedy's office in Washington, D.C., where Robert Kennedy convinced him that working for the ACLU was a good idea. During the second half of the podcast, we delve into Ira's time running the ACLU. We talk about First Amendment issues, and we talk about the things Ira's most proud of today, looking back on his career. After our conversation ended, Ira told me that he was worried heading into our interview that he wouldn't remember much. He said that he hadn't thought about a lot of the issues I wanted to discuss in over 15 years. But boy, was he wrong. 16 years after retiring and 50 years after starting at the ACLU, Ira hasn't forgotten a thing. And that's good, because some of the stories that Ira shares with me today and shares with you during these next two hours will knock your socks off. And now, Ira Glasser. Ira, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. So I want to ask you, you have a background in mathematics. Why civil liberties work then? Well, uh, that's a very long story, actually. But the, the, in the sum of it, uh, those were the issues uh, that I was interested in. I, didn't, I wouldn't have called them civil liberties when I was 15 or 16 or 18 or 19. Uh, what would you have called them? I would have called them probably social issues. I would have, I, I would have called them philosophical issues. I would have called them political issues. Uh, but the kinds of things that I was mostly interested in, you would find in, if you found it at all in school, you would find it in courses, in sociology courses or literature courses or, or philosophy courses or history courses. Um, uh, but nobody knew what that was. And, and when I was a kid, if you ever said that's what you were interested in, the response you got from any adult you said it to, your parents, your uncles, your aunts, your guidance counselors, anybody, was, well, yeah, but you can't, what, what are you, how are you going to earn a living? Uh, well, you know, the only way to earn a living is to be a writer, and nobody really knew what that meant, and it was sort of like deciding to become an actor or something. It was, it was you know, well... Most people who try to do that don't succeed. You can't. It's like, oh, I want to be a jazz musician, right? You know, and and so so there was there was, or else you could go teach. And I wasn't particularly interested in teaching. I was I sort of had like I wanted to change the world. You know, I mean, I was I was if anything I I, I thought of social criticism. I thought of 
I thought of dissenting from this or that or the other thing. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, from the time I had any consciousness at all, from, from 14, 15, 16, and, and throughout college. But there was, you were enormously discouraged by vocational considerations by any adult that you talk mm -hmm. to. Um, and so you had to really be driven, uh, you know, uh, and, and be willing to, to look at a bleak future if you wanted to, to pursue that. On the other hand, this was the 1950s, and, and um, because of Sputnik and the uh, increasing Cold War competition, uh, there was beginning to be tremendous uh, emphasis in school on science and mathematics and physics. And if you were good at it, it was very hard to avoid being tracked into it. And you were good at it. Yes, I was. And uh, it wasn't my passion. It was never my passion. But I was just always a, a an honor student, a straight A student, you know, in high school, Phi Beta Kappa in college. I was, I you know, I, I, I was very good in mathematics. And where'd you go to college? I went to, to uh, what's now, you know, CUNY in New York. It was then independent colleges in the boroughs. Yeah, you were a Brooklyn kid. I, yeah, but not by then. By then, my parents had had moved from Brooklyn out to what they told me was Long Island, but which I later discovered was Queens. <laughs> and, um, you know, that great migration to the suburbs in the 50s, uh, especially if you were white. Uh, so I ended up at Queens College. But, you know, it would have been Hunter if I was in Manhattan. It would have been Brooklyn if I was in Brooklyn. And it was free. In those days, you know, you went to. I lived at home. You went to college the way you went to high school. It was just the next, the next step. Uh, you know, there was a there was a test. You had to you had to have a certain grade point average. You had to, you know, but but that was not a barrier. Well, we're coming full circle because Cuomo's budget and they're all talking about that again now because it's become impossible and because that was the free colleges in in in, in New York City were the entryway to the entire generation of, of the children of the immigrants who came in the early 20th century, you know, around 1905. And, uh, and, were your parents immigrants? No, my grandparents were, though. My parents were both born here. But I was the first person, you know, in the family. I was the oldest son of the oldest son and the oldest daughter. In the, in, and, and so I was the first person to go on to college. I mean, it was a... You know, I remember the first day I went to school in kindergarten, first grade. My grandmother, who had migrated uh, from from uh, from Minsk in Russia when she, when she was thirteen, and you know, this was like this is why I came. This was the dream. She, you know, she she walked in front of me throwing little sugar cubes for luck. You know, I, I vividly remember that. I didn't even know what was going on. I was just going to school. You know, and and um, but but this. Uh, so, so that was a real gateway for for the generation before me um, and and my generation. So the free colleges, without them, you know, every nobody could have afforded tuition. I mean, it wasn't. I didn't even apply. I mean, I was a very good student. I didn't even apply to any place else. I, you just you just went. You know, after high school, you went to one of the city colleges the same way that you went to high school after junior high school or after grade school. And, and um, uh, so, and it was a great system. And it was a great system because the faculty in those, they didn't have a graduate school in those days. They just had the colleges. So the, 
so the great and experienced uh, scholar teachers did not migrate into the graduate school, leaving uh, less experienced um, undergraduate to to to, 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 teach, to teach. Yeah. And so uh, and a, and there were a lot of great teachers in those days because they had come up during the 30s during the depression when when having a tenured faculty position was a, a tremendous and unusual security so they all were in there and this was true in history it was true in literature it was true in math it was true. i mean i i i had undergraduate math courses with with a, with a guy who who co-authored a paper with einstein and there he was teaching teaching calculus you know and to to, to 19 year olds and so the the um, and it was true in every subject. So the quality of instruction that you were getting was not it was not only free; it was a very high level uh, for undergraduates. And it wasn't really until the early '60s when the colleges uh, in New York City came together to form what is now CUNY, and they created a graduate school, which immediately drained off um, the best and the most experienced uh, uh, instructors. Instructors. And, and um, you know, and I ended up coming back from graduate school and teaching at Queens College when I was 22 years old, and I never taught in my life. And, and, you know, I liked teaching more than I expected to, and I was good at it, but that was a very different experience for the kids in my class than it was for me just five years, six years before. Um, uh, and and that gen so that generation passed, and then, the, then, then they began to, to charge, and so the whole the whole gateway into a into a different world that the free college system was in New York City disappeared, and that's what the backlash now is about. That is that, but this is like forty years later. Yeah, you know, when you were a kid, and you said you were always interested in what you called just politics or philosophical issues. Who were the people you looked up to at at those times for commentary on those issues? I mean, Nat Hentoff is a few years older That's, than you. Yeah, that, that was, that was I never heard of Hentoff. I don't think Hentoff was writing then. He was doing most of his jazz yes, stuff. Yes, that's yeah. right. And it was, it was before I ever knew him. No, it was people, it was people like Murray Kempton and I.F. Stone and Jimmy Wexler and Max Lerner. Um, it were people who wrote for newspapers like PM, which was a, uh, a short-lived afternoon newspaper in New York. Uh, which had, a, I later found out, a kind of a radical reputation, but it was basically people like Murray Kempton and I.F. Stone and people like that. Um, it was only thought of as radical because in, after World War II and the McCarthyism came, I mean, anything was radical. That wasn't, yeah. that wasn't right wing. Um, but it was a newspaper without advertising, uh, and it was the only newspaper in my house. I mean, I never saw The Times. But, you know, the Daily News and the Journal American, and they, they were right-wing newspapers. And the Daily Mirror, you know, the, the, the Post was, uh, was, was, came after the PM. I mean, it was, it was there, but we never read it. it was, so the PM was in my house and it had all these writers. And, and, uh, but I didn't read much of them when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14. I read the sports pages. Yeah. Or, or You're a big baseball fan, huh? right? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I was nine years old when Jackie Robinson broke in, and that was the you know the, the race drama of my life. Although I don't think I realized it at the time, but you know the idea of a of in 1947 when this country, north as well as south, 
was rigidly exclusionary and separated. I grew up in an, in a, in an area of, uh, of East Flatbush um, that was, you know, you could walk 10, 20 blocks in, from any, in any direction from my house and not find anybody who wasn't white and Jewish. You know, never mind black. I mean, you didn't. You had to. You had to go pretty far to find Italian Catholics or Irish Catholics. I mean, it was right at the borders of these ethnic neighborhoods that there were fights and violence. But within them, they were very segregated. I mean, the you know the meat stores had Hebrew letters on them. You know about about kosher stuff and and the and 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 there were foreign language newspapers. Uh, there was, you know, Yiddish language where I was. There was Czech someplace else. There was German someplace else, you know. So that it was a very rigid um, and separated society, not by law the way it was in the South, but but by custom. I mean, there were no black teachers. There were no black kids in my school. There were no blacks that you ever saw in the stores, not only behind the counter but shopping. Uh, if I went to the polling places with my parents when they voted, there was never any blacks there. If I went to the union hall with my father, who was a construction worker, um, uh, worked, you know, and, and that was sort of the, the, the left of the, of the liberal politics in those days, I didn't realize it at the time. It, 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 was, so, it was so routine that you didn't see it. Mm. But there were no blacks and you know, only decades later did I find out when I was at the ACLU that the reason there were no blacks is that the labor unions discriminated against them. You, you know, and at a time during the Depression and, and, and after where you could not get a construction job in New York City unless you were a member of the union. You know, there, was, there was no non-union work, not for carpenters, not for electricians, not for bricklayers, not for plasterers, not for painters, not for glaziers, not for any. And the unions were all white and so you wonder you know when you when you look when you look at the legacy of racism and how it got transmitted my father who was an unemployed construction worker during the depression manages to survive because he's a member of a union so the post-war boom there's a lot of construction work and he and he gets a lot of it and he's he's a working guy but you know he ends up he ends up having enough money to be able in 1950 to put a small down payment on a house in Queens, Queens or Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he gets a mortgage, um, many of which came through, through, uh, uh, through uh, federal uh, FHA, and they didn't give mortgages to blacks. So blacks didn't have the money because they didn't have the jobs, and then they couldn't get the mortgages. So the suburbs became a reflection of all this. And when the migration from Brooklyn and the Bronx to the suburbs in Westchester and Queens and Long Island happens in the 50s, it's entirely white. Levittown gets built with, you know, 30,000 of these little ticky-tacky houses, and not one of them is owned or occupied by a black family. Not one of them. So this whole out-migration, and then they build the highways, not mass transit, they build the highways and they build, you know, Jones Beach and they build all this stuff out to the Robert, to the, Moses, Robert Moses stuff. And, 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 and they did things like they built the overpasses uh, over these highways low enough so that buses couldn't get through. So what happens is, you know, 
I'm a teenager. You start to date. You go out with friends. You know, on a weekend, you run out to Jones Beach. Uh, a, you need a car. And B, you go to Jones Beach, and it's all white. And you don't even notice any of that because it's it's so normal that... You know, every, 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 I don't realize it until, until much later. Now, what happens, I'm nine years old, back in East Flatbush before this move, 1947, and Jackie Robinson breaks it. Just around the shoulders, three and one the count. And into this rigidly separated and segregated society, you were a kid like me, even though I'm growing up in a liberal household, you know, where FDR was a god, and, and in 1948, when, when Henry Wallace runs against Harry Truman, my father is for Harry Truman, and my mother is for Henry Wallace, and I think that that's the whole range of political opinion in America. It was so parochial, it was so, you know. But into this thing, suddenly, there's Jackie Robinson. Robinson dashes for the plate. And, and... And you go to Ebbets Field as a kid. You take the trolley, you're 10, 9, 10 years old, you go to Ebbets Field. And one of the things that happened during those years is because of Robinson, blacks started coming to the ballpark. So all of a sudden, a 10-year-old kid is sitting in the bleachers next to a black guy. And you're rooting for the same thing. You're on the same side. And you're, you know, hitting each other in the shoulder when something good happens for your team. And I'm rooting for Robinson, and he's rooting for he's Carl Ferrillo, and... And, and, you know, and this is an experience that it's impossible to have for a nine, ten-year-old white boy anywhere in the country except in Ebbets Field. Ebbets Field becomes the only integrated public accommodation in the whole country. And lots of us went through that process, and things happened to you psychologically as a result of it that you weren't even aware of. Um, uh, for example, I'm listening, there's no television then, I'm listening to the ball games. Um, and I'm listening to Red Barber broadcast a play-by-play -play, uh, 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 of the Dodger games with his southern accent because he was from Mississippi. And things are happening on the field. I mean, they, they, they're harassing Robinson, they're, they're, you know, they're throwing beanballs at him. And, and you, you know all this, and you hate it because, not because... You've developed a racial justice ideology. You hate it because it's your guy, and it's your team, and 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 at a very elemental level, this becomes a kind of a a tribal reaction. You know, you hate the Yankees, you hate the Giants, you hate the Cardinals, you know, and they're doing this shit to your guy, and so you hate that, and you become defensive for it, and all of a sudden, every kid on my block. Robinson becomes their favorite player, and they're identifying with his struggle. We don't even know what it is that we're ingesting. Um, and, and, and the first place I learn about Jim Crow laws is listening to the broadcast of the Dodger games, where I am told by the announcer doing the play-by-play -play that when the Dodgers are in St. Louis playing the Cardinals, Robinson and Campanella and Newcomb have to stay at a different hotel than the rest of the team and eat in different restaurants because of Jim Crow laws, because St. Louis is a southern town. And that's how I find out about Jim Crow laws. And that's how I hate it. They can't do that. To your guy? Yeah. You know, so, so this whole experience of 
of, of like, and I, you know, I used to joke when I was at the ACLU, I discovered that almost every, this, this was less true of women because women, girls were discouraged from being baseball fans. You know, that was another whole sexist thing. So it was mostly for boys. But, but uh, I discover when I'm at the ACLU many decades later, a curious sort of statistical quirk, which is that virtually everybody all the lawyers, all the you know, every all the guys in the, on the staff about my age, give or take a few years, were Dodger fans. There were no Yankee fans, and there was only an occasional Giant fan. You sure and, that wasn't uh, team discrimination there? No, no. I, I mean, it, it became so when I became aware of it. I used to joke that you know, I'm for free speech, but if you don't take down that poster with the Yankees, you're out of here. You know, people would say, but but the. Um, no, the fact is, it was the other way around. It was, it turned out that what my experience that I just described about, about the impact on me as a 9, 10, 11 year old white kid growing up in a segregated society of the Jackie Robinson phenomenon helped determine in a very definite direction the, the political values that turned into civil rights and, and that that was not an accident. I knew enough about statistics to know that the probability that random hiring uh, would turn out that everybody who worked at the ACLU were Dodger fans and there were no Yankee fans. And we all knew that the Yankees were one of the last teams to have a black player. They were the, you know, of all the teams in both leagues, they were the third from the last to ever hire a black player. And they didn't until 1955 or six, six, I think. And we all knew that. And it was one of the defining lines. So I used to always joke that, you know, if you were a Dodger fan, you grew up to believe in civil liberties and civil rights. And if you were a Yankee fan, you grew up to believe in oil depletion allowances. <laughs> and if you were a Giant fan, you were basically morally confused. <laughs> and, uh, but there's no, there's no question that that experience um, affected, I mean, what I, what I later understood about my own political development turned out to be something that almost everybody who was my age, who was a Dodger fan, who I met later years, went through the same thing. Yeah. And so it was a very uh, pivotal political moment. But that's how my interests focused. I mean, it wasn't because... You didn't you know, read someone who inspired you. You just lived in a culture that yeah, changed and yeah, brought yeah, these, these yeah, issues Yeah, more to the That's floor. right. More, more that. More that. I mean, later, when I was... By the time I was in, in, in college and I began reading more systematically... Uh, you know, it began having more content to it. Uh, uh, but, but for the most part, uh, uh, the, the, heroes, the heroes were more sports heroes, and, and, which is one of the reasons why I've always thought that, that the lessons that you learn through things like sports, including, you know, stuff like when we were opposing uh, the unconstitutionality of, of urine searches during the drug stuff, the place, the arena where everybody understood that was because of athletes getting tested. They yeah. did that to me when I was at Indiana University and yeah. I was an athlete. They'd call you up the night before at about 10 p.m. and say you had to be there at 6, 6 a.m. to yeah. take yeah, your drug was, test. And, you know, by that time, by that time, I had read a lot of the uh, Founding Fathers stuff and I, I, I just knew somehow um, there was nobody, not Alexander Hamilton, not James Madison, not Thomas Jefferson, there was nobody among the founders who would not have been outraged by the notion that you had to drop your pants and piss in a cup for somebody in order to get a job. 
I mean, these were people uh, who started the Revolutionary War because of searches of their footlockers. Yeah, searches and seizures. Right. It seems like civil liberties hit you, or civil rights, hit you at your core. Uh, when you think about getting into that sort of work today, you think about doing it through the legal avenue. Now, you're not a lawyer, but you rose to the position of executive director of the ACLU, which is probably the most prominent legal organization in the United States. So how does that happen? So you started at the New York Civil Liberties Union, yeah. the affiliate chapter. How do you get there and become its executive director and then get to the ACLU and become well, its uh, leader? So I end up going to graduate school in math. And, and when I'm in graduate school, I suddenly can't take courses in literature anymore. Even though I was majoring in math in undergraduate school, I was still taking lots of courses in literature and sociology and philosophy and stuff. And because math was going to be your vocation, but literature and was philosophy my, was your was my passion. Education. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, I took, you know, anybody else who was going on to graduate school in math um, uh, went way beyond the uh, 32 credits that they were required to be a math major. They would take 42 credits. You know, when they got to be juniors and seniors, they took nothing but math courses. I took the minimum. I ended up having 32 credits, and that was it. My whole senior year, I ended up taking four. I was the only non-history major in the history courses, the only non-English major in the English courses, the only non you know. I took all that. When I got to graduate school, that was impossible. And I was just immersed in mathematics and nothing else, and I hated it. I mean, I, I felt like I was uh, exercising, you know, one finger and I was going to end up with the strongest finger in the world, but the rest of me was atrophying. And I, I, I was on a doctoral program, and after a year, I got my master's degree, and I said, I can't do this. Um, and I just, I, I, I was newly married. My wife and I just picked up, and we left, and we came back to New York. And um, I got a job teaching math at Queens College, which by that time, the graduate school had begun and it had siphoned off all the more experienced people. And so they were hiring people like me. And I had, coming back there, I had been a star student there. And so I got the job without a doctorate and I was teaching math. And, uh, and I still hadn't given up on the idea of, of graduate school. So I enrolled in a program, uh, a doctoral program at the new school uh, a, a, a combined doctoral program in philosophy and sociology because by that time I had decided if I was going to go on in graduate school and uh, it was going to be in my subject matter it wasn't going to be in their subject matter uh, but as it turned out you know it was the academic enterprise itself that was that was I was becoming alienated from I was more activist than that I wasn't thinking of doing anything like the ACLU. The ACLU was a small organization. I had hardly ever heard of it. I don't think I had heard of it at that time. This is sort of 1961, 62. So I leave the, 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 that, the new school after a year, and, 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 and I'm teaching math at Queens. And uh, an opportunity arises to teach mathematics at Sarah Lawrence College, which was this very sort of fancy... Uh, uh, rich girls school and um, that's in Florida right no no no, no it's, it's in it's in uh, it's in Westchester lower low, low Westchester County right confusing Bo schools yeah. right below Scarsdale and um, uh, 
but it's it's a it's a kind of a radical school. They don't have they don't teach in large lecture halls, and you know they have small classes. It's sort of like a like a like a British system, like Oxford. They have six seven people in the class, and you have some lectures, of, but then you have tutorials and conferences and stuff like that. And they didn't have grades; they had written evaluations and the whole thing. So, and and you could you could teach, and you know these were kids who was taking math at all were not taking it for vocational reasons. They were taking it for purposes of general education. And it always seemed to me by that time I had figured out that that uh, teaching math to freshmen who were going to take it for one year for purposes of general education had to be very different than teaching it to people for whom it was the first step toward becoming nuclear engineers or something. And, and so you had to ask yourself the question, why is it important for somebody seeking a general education to even learn this stuff? And, you know, I discovered during those years that, that um, one of the things that, that every freshman took in every college in the country was analytic geometry along with calculus. Analytic geometry was invented by Descartes. And because I had read Descartes in a philosophy course, I had learned that he developed the analytic geometry as part of his effort to prove the existence of God. But when you learned analytic geometry in the math class, there was no mention of that. It was those pages were ripped from the book. And when you learned about Descartes in the philosophy course, the analytic geometry was gone because the segmentation of the academic enterprise had really made it indecipherable. So, so when you read Descartes in philosophy course, his attempt to prove the existence of God was vacuous because the analytic geometry was a key part of it, but it wasn't there because they couldn't teach it in the philosophy course because nobody understood it. And when you learned about it in, in the math class, the philosophy was all stripped away. So neither had any full meaning. So I decided that if I was going to teach math to young undergraduates, for the purposes of, of, of a general liberal education, it had to be done together. And you couldn't do that in the, in the, at Queens College or mostly at any university, because um, it violated their whole academic departmental segmentation. But I was able to do that at Sarah Lawrence because it was sort of a progressive and experimental school. And so I set about you know, teaching things like non-Euclidean geometry and topology and all kinds of things uh, like that. And I loved it, but they only, you know, they were basically a, a, a literature and arts school. They had very little math and science, and they only had one guy on the math faculty. And they were, in the, they were then expanding it by adding a half person, and I was that half person. So I left Queens College, and I decided if I'm going to stay teaching math, which by that time I, I was liking uh, unexpectedly, I was going to do it there. And so I left. The problem was it was only a half-time position, which paid $2,900 a year. This is in 61 or 62. My wife, who was a kindergarten teacher, had become pregnant, so she left her job. So suddenly, um, that was our whole income, $2,900 a year. And, and uh, you know, when you're 23, 24, and, you know, I always knew if worse came to worse, I could go get a job with North American Aviation or Grumman Aircraft, or IBM, you know, they, I, was, I, was a, I was a star mathematics student, and I could have walked into a $30,000 job even back then. So 
with that kind of security uh, and at that age, you could take risks and you could you could take steps that you know later on maybe you couldn't take because you would have two kids and you would have a mortgage and you would have, and I just had this sense that if you didn't experiment then, when could you? And so even though to everybody else it looked like what I was doing was very risky, I never felt that there was much of a risk because I, you know, I, I could always fall back on something which I never had to. So I take that job and I decide that this is the opportunity, if I'm only working half time, to try now to find a way to branch out into the things that really moved me. Politics, and, philosophy, yeah, well, civil rights. You know, th th this was 1962. So yeah. stuff was starting to bubble and boil out there yeah. in a way that was very different from the 50s during McCarthyism when, is when I you know, really grew up. So I, I decide, well, um, it would be great to do some editing, to do some writing. By this time, I'm reading all this stuff that I wasn't reading when I was 12. And um, so I decide to try to get an editorial position. Now, I've never been in a high school newspaper. You talk about you know, heading up the ACLU not being a lawyer. The really scary thing was I write to all these magazines and newspapers trying to get a job editing. I've never been on a high school newspaper. I have never taken a journalism course. I, God knows what they must have thought receiving these letters. But, you know, there's a certain kind of naive arrogance that you have when you're that age. You know, you, 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 I was smart. I was capable. I was committed. And I wrote these letters. And of course, virtually nobody answered me. You know, I I I, uh, uh, I wrote to the Nation, which I had then just discovered. I wrote to a few other journals. I wrote to the New Republic. I wrote to the New York Post. I wrote, and there was a magazine called Current back then, which which was brand new. It started in 1962, and I I I was I was um, vacuuming up new publications at the time. I was you know reading and subscribing to. Dozens of things, and I was, and and Current was one of them, and it was a very interesting magazine because what it did is it it subscribed to seven hundred periodicals, law journals, journals of sociology, political science, uh, the New York Times magazine, uh, dozens of newspapers, the Washington Post, the Times, the St. Louis Post Dispatch, the Wall Street Journal, this you know dozens of academic journals and popular magazines and they would the editors would read them all and then cull the what they thought were the best articles from them but focused on new ideas all all around social issues this was sort of conceived of as a magazine for the citizen so it was all about unemployment and economics and poverty and foreign affairs and civil rights and all the stuff that Moved me, and um, and then they would construct kind of dialogues between excerpts from these articles that they found, so that you know you would have a section on automation and unemployment, or a section on on on, uh, on the civil rights struggle, or a section on the uh, Sino-Soviet split, and 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 um, you would have pieces of the articles from all these different sources, ranging from two sentences to five pages, arranged and edited in a kind of a constructed debate and discussion. It was fascinating stuff. Sounds and like a perfect publication for you who's vacuuming up all these that's other publications. That's exactly what it was. It was like, it was like one of those, uh, that's, why, that's why luck plays, uh, plays such a part in these 
in, 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 in the answer to the question, well, how did you get from here to there? For some reason, the founding editor of that magazine. What was his or her name? Sidney Hertzberg. Um, my letter appealed to him. I don't know why. Do you remember what it said? I basically told him my story about what, you know, and why I thought this magazine was really bridged all of the artificial gaps that academic disciplines created. And, you know, it was sort of like where I had come from and why I, yeah. you know. And, and I, think, I think if I were to guess, I think it appealed to him because he didn't meet too many people, particularly readers of the, of the magazine, who really understood conceptually what he was trying to do. And I did. And he agrees to see me. And I go in there. This is probably, I don't know, August, September of 62. And I end up getting a job as associate editor. Now, everybody in the magazine, there's about five or six people in the magazine, everybody a career journalist. They're all mostly 20 or 30 years older than I am. Um, you know, I, as I said, I had never been in a school newspaper. And, and, and I, I end up on the magazine, and uh, there are some ups and downs because small magazines um, have periodic financial problems and people get laid off. And uh, I was the last one hired, so I was the first one laid off at one point for a few months. But um, I had the time. I was still teaching half-time. I was still teaching math half-time at Sarah Lawrence. And he agreed to, I could still do that. And, and, um, and so I'm there as associate editor. And one of the people I meet, I'll telescope this now. Uh, one of the people I meet is Arya Nair. Who we've interviewed on this podcast. And who uh, was then uh, uh, on the staff. He wasn't doing editing of the staff, but he was, he was doing direct mail. He was, he was helping to promote the magazine. He didn't know anything about that. Well, but he was, and he was basically about my age. He was a year older than I was. He was the only other one who was close to my age. And we become colleagues at the magazine, and he is newly married, and I am newly married, and he has a young son, and I have a young son. So we, you know, we, we, we begin to socialize a little bit, have dinner at each other's houses, and, and, and on a small magazine, it's almost like a little family anyway. And we become friends and colleagues and associates. And then some years later, he gets laid off in one of the periodic downturns that small magazines have, and he ends up uh, 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 getting a job at the ACLU. And that's kind of the first time that I, I don't know if it's the first time I ever heard of the ACLU, but it's the first time I sort of become aware of it. Now, it was still a very small uh, organization with an undeserved left-wing reputation. And, and as you said, almost entirely legal. You know. So he, he gets a job with the New York Civil Liberties Union and later when the, when the not too much later, the, the longtime director of the NYCLU uh, is old and he retires, Arye becomes the head of the NYCLU, of the New York Civil Liberties Union, the New York affiliate of the ACLU. And we keep in touch. And I'm, by that time, I'm, I'm, I've risen in the magazine, the founding editor leaves, or, and I'm, I'm basically editing the magazine with two or three people. Um, and, and, and after a while, I begin to realize, this is after three, four, five years, 
that this magazine is, is a great concept, but since it still has a very small readership, it's not really going anywhere, and it's not going to go anywhere, and it's not going to satisfy my my desire to sort of affect things. And, be, and I get to, you know, by this time it's 65, 66, and, and stuff is really bubbling and boiling. The anti-Vietnam War movement is starting. The civil rights movement is rising. Uh, uh, and, and I'm getting more and more interested in going into politics per se. I don't exactly know what that means. I'm thinking of it not running for office. I'm thinking of it going to work for somebody I admire. And, and somewhere in 1966, I decide that the, uh, uh, the most change agent politician out there is Bobby Kennedy. The unemployment rate of those living in the ghetto is not going down despite the poverty program, despite all of these other programs. The unemployment rate is going up. Education I was never a big fan of John Kennedy. And um, 1960 was the first presidential election I was eligible to vote in, and I, I was I was heartbroken over over Kennedy's arresting the nomination away from Adlai Stevenson, who had been a hero of mine, and um, and I didn't see all that much difference between Kennedy and Nixon, and 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 I ended up voting for Kennedy, but it was a struggle. But Bobby Kennedy, uh, I had become really turned on to by the mid '60s. And I begin this thing that I did with the magazine. I, I write him this letter. And, you know, I, I, I wondered for years after, because I've received so many letters like that myself at the ACLU, you know, and I always had a, I always leaned over backwards to see people for that reason, because so often these letters come in and you know, who is this person, you know? Um, it took me a long time, and I had a connection with Pierre Salinger, because I knew his brother, um, who was Kennedy's uh, press secretary, John Kennedy's press secretary at the time, was part of that clan. And he intervened with me, and, and um, after a long time, I, I finally get an appointment with Bobby Kennedy. And in late, I think it was December 66 or January 67, I actually get to see him. And what I said in the letter was that I thought he was a unique politician, neither liberal nor conservative, and he was uniquely positioned to make real change in the country, of the kind that I wanted, and that I thought he should run for president, and I thought if he did, he's going to need more people like me. <laughs> <laughs> old? I, How old are you at this time? Uh, by that time, I'm 28. And uh, outside of math, I have no experience in anything except the five years of the magazine. But I get the appointment, and you know, years later, when I was at the ACLU, and it was so hard to see senators, and you never got to see them alone. You know, there was always staff people and this and that. And I got like 45 minute meeting with him, just me and him and his barber who was giving him a haircut at the time that we were talking. And, and he, having read the letter, asked me, well, you know, so why, what, what are you interested in? And I went through the whole business and, and, uh, and don't forget, this was like December 66, January 67. He was far from ready to challenge Johnson or to get out there, and he was a senator, and you know. So he says to me, "Well, I'm not, I'm not ready yet to decide whether I'm whether I want to do this or whether I can do this, 
But it, the fact is that we, despite this legislation, we haven't moved in the right direction. I, I support a lot of this legislation. But he was already beginning to kind of gather up people, and I realized later that's sort of why he agreed to see me, and he says to me, um, uh, well, I'm not going to be hiring anybody anytime soon, but you should stay in touch. Um, which, you know, I only years later realized was sort of an astonishing response instead of a blow-off. Yes. And he asked me to stay in touch with Frank Mankiewicz, one of his top aides, which I did. And then he says to me, and this is one of the most interesting and insightful sort of stories of my vocational life. He then says to me, so what else are you thinking of doing, given these interests? I said, well... I don't know, but you know, I I um, I got an offer, which I had just a few weeks before, from Arye at the NYCLU, who said they were beginning to grow, the money was beginning to come in. Uh, this was late '66, and it was fueled by all of the movements that were growing then. And he said they were, he was thinking of creating the position of associate director, and was I interested? And my response to him, probably not. I, for one thing, I said, you know. I'm not a lawyer. He says, well, I'm not a lawyer either. I said, I know, but you're running the organization. And I said, in any way, I think, and I say this to Kennedy, I think the ACLU is much narrower than my interests. I mean, when I saw it as, you know, legal interests and constitutional law, I, I, I saw it in a, in, a, in a way that was, that was narrow. And I said, uh, I'm interested in more broad Things. I mean, that was why I was interested in politics. Um, I was interested in foreign affairs. I was interested in economics. I was interested in all these other issues. And that the legal issue seemed to me to be narrowly constructed. And Kennedy looks at me and says, you're wrong about that. And it astonished me years later to realize that a guy like Kennedy, who did not come out of a liberal background, was not particularly disposed to constitutional rights and worked, you know, for Joe McCarthy, he was a kind of a hard-edged guy. It was amazing to me that he had this insight, uh, which as a sort of a dyed-in-the-wool, born-and-bred liberal, I did not have uh, and wasn't to have until years later after being at the ACLU. He said to me, you're wrong about the narrowness. He said, "If you, the ACLU is a unique organization in American life, and it's unique because it's it's based on a set of radical principles about what this country is founded on, but it operates in the mainstream of American institutions. It operates in legislatures, it operates in courts, you know, so it's very politically mainstream in how it goes about pursuing its ends, but its ends are based on a radical and correct understanding of the principles that the country is based on which was an amazing thing for a guy like Kennedy to understand and articulate in 1967. Um, I couldn't have, and I didn't, and I thought about that. And he said, you should, you should think seriously about taking that job. So I left Washington, I went back to New York, and I rethought that. And partly because my real intention was to continue relating to him and in the hope that I would end up on his staff, and, you know, if he thought this was a good idea, that maybe it was good for me to do it, partly for that reason and partly because the more I thought about it, the more that interested me. And I had nothing else to do. I had an offer to go back to the University of Illinois and, 
and, and develop math curriculum for elementary school kids, which if I had stayed in math is what I probably would have done. So I go out and I interview for that and I get offered to that job, but I decide this is the moment where I can't have it both ways. I have to decide I'm going this direction or I'm going in that direction. And I say no to the math and I leave the Sarah Lawrence job and I take the job at the, at the Civil Liberties Union as Arye's associate director. This is, uh, in two weeks, it'll be 50 years to the day, May 1st, 1967. And I'm fully intending to be there for a year or two until Kennedy runs, which I'm convinced he's going to do. And I stay in touch with Mankiewicz. And, you know, I get involved in all kinds of things at the, at the New York Civil Liberties Union. And then I'm up in Syracuse one day uh, speaking for the NYCLU. Uh, and and I'm, I'm staying at the, uh, at the home of the law school dean uh, at the time. And I wake up in the morning after the speech and the radio is playing uh, in the kitchen or something. And it's talking about the Kennedy assassination. And I say to myself, you know, half asleep, that was f five years ago. Why, I mean, six years ago, why, why are they talking about the assassination? And of course, what they're talking about is RFK's assassination. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today. June 6, 1968. And like for so many other people, it just cut the ground out from under me. You know, I go back to New York in a stupor. And then suddenly, you know, there's no political route for me. Gene McCarthy is not going anywhere. You know, Humphrey, we're all pissed off about because of his support of the Vietnam War and Johnson. And then, you know, Nixon gets elected. Nixon, you know, the, the, the Darth Vader of our, of our youth. And, and, and so suddenly, here I am on the, thinking I'm on this path where the NYCLU is a temporary landing spot where I can do some good things and, and some interesting things. But it really, it's really, that's, it really is a temporary spot until I can find a way into politics. And then suddenly, you know, King is dead, Kennedy is dead, Nixon is in the White House, and for people like me, the political roots to, to, to change were gone for the foreseeable future. And so I stay at the NYCLU, uh, really not thinking of it as a long-term thing still, but, but right now it puts me in a position to fight for things I believe in, to resist the things I I. I, I don't believe in, and it becomes a kind of almost government in exile, you know, operating on the same issues, not through politics, but outside of politics, using, using the, the leverage courts, of the court of public opinion, the court of public opinion, the legislatures, state and federal, and the courts. And, and it becomes the place where people in those years where people like me get to fight for the things that formerly we thought you had to be in politics to fight for, effectively. And I begin to get an appreciation of what Kennedy told me in that interview, that 
that the route to political change in this country is not just through the institutions of formal politics, it's through this whole range of organizations outside of politics who function as pressure points upon the political system. And that the more I learned about it as I went on, the more I came to understand that most of the, of the fundamental political and social changes that have occurred in this country have occurred from the bottom up and that the political systems were the last ones to jump on. That, you know, when you went to the March on Washington in 1963, which I, which I did, uh, I was 25 at the time, and it was, I, I've never been to anything like it in my life before or since for that matter. And there was no, the president wasn't there. The president, this was John Kennedy, didn't send a message. Uh, there was no senators. There were no members of the House. There were no political figures there. You know, it was King and Bayard Rustin and, and Whitney Young and Roy Wilkins and John Lewis. I mean, I heard a glasser in the audience. And, uh, somewhere in that crowd, as I, every time one of my kids sees the pictures, where are you? I said, somewhere, somewhere in there. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. So I end up staying at the NYCLU. Three years later in 1970, RA is elected as head of the national ACLU, and I slip in to his position of executive director of the ACLU in 1970, where I stay till 1978. And then he leaves the ACLU, and I'm a candidate. By that time, I'm sort of one of the young leading figures in the organization, and I'm one of several candidates, and I get chosen. And so in the, in the fall of 78, I become national executive director. And then, you know, 10, 15 years after that, I wake up in a hotel room someplace, and I realize, holy shit, I've been here 20 years, and 25 years uh, since the day, and, and, and I thought this was a two-year gig. <laughs> Before you and, got into politics. And this, yes, and this turned out to be, you know, my political life in a way that totally fulfilled, I mean totally, in an unimaginably terrific way, all of those dreams and ambitions and desires that couldn't be articulated when I was 15 and 16 and 18 and 19 and that no adult could give a vocational shape to. Because in partly, these organizations, you know, as I used to tell people in the, in the, in the 70s and 80s, 90% of all the organizations you know about, NARAL, you know, NOW, the, uh, the, the, the Legal Defense Funds, the Asian American Legal Defense Fund, the Mexican American Legal Fund, the Common Cause, Environmental Defense Fund, all of these organizations didn't exist then. And they all were created during the turbulence of the 60s. And collectively became places where people like me, uh, like I had been when I was 15, could say, that's what I want to grow up to do. And suddenly the nature of people going to law school changed. When I started at the ACLU, all the lawyers there had come from firms. They had gone to law school for all the reasons I didn't go to law school, that they were going to become rich. They were going to represent corporations and banks and estates and trusts and do stuff like that. And then, you know, they, they graduated law school. They went into these firms. They began working their way up to partner. They're about my age. The civil rights movement happened. 
they started doing volunteer legal work for the ACLU. Then they left their firms and they came to work for the ACLU, again, thinking they would be there for two years before they would go back and make their part. And it, it, the whole thing changed for them and they never went back. Uh, but by the late 60s and early 70s, young people had begun to go to law school, really for the first time, for the purpose of coming out and working for... For the purpose of being an activist, and going right. into public interest work. And that had never been possible or even thinkable or even imaginable when I was that age as a young person. So, so for me... This was all like some kind of an accidental metamorphosis where I had ended up in exact, with exactly what I had dreamed of doing, although I couldn't have articulated it back then, nor given it the shape, nor imagined that it would be the ACLU. One of the reasons why I was so stunned is that Bobby Kennedy seemed to understand that in 1967, which was, given who he was, an extraordinary thing. Yeah, he was an establishment guy, and this was oh, very much a grass, grassroots movement. He, He's was getting... he was totally, but it was part of what was happening with him. Part of what appealed to me in him was this transformative figure he had become. And in order to become that kind of a transformative figure, you have to be transformed yourself. You know, and, 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 and that's the real meaning of the term charismatic. I mean, the term char charisma is often misused to to be a synonym for magnet for magnetic, but really it is a change, uh, a transformative fundamental change. You know, uh, and there were lots of people. I mean, there was there was Kennedy, there was King, there was Muhammad Ali, there were there was Jackie Robinson. There were lots of people who who were charismatic, transformative figures, and and in a way that you know I sort of regard as a stroke of luck. Um, I crossed paths with more than a few of them, and it changed, it changed me and it opened up, for me, the vocational life I, I had in an inchoate way uh, dreamed of without any definition to it back, back when I was younger. So the story of your career could almost be said to be one where you follow your passions, uh, you know, you, yes. or, or go places where people wouldn't expect you to go based on your education. Yes. You know, you, you got into teaching, not really wanting to go into teaching. You got into journalism with no real journalism background. You sought to get into politics and probably would have gotten into politics had it not been for the, the Robert Kennedy assassination. Then you got into law as a non-lawyer. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All that, all that is right. And, and all of it is... Uh, the content of, of whenever a young person would pop into my office or want to see me or write me one of these crazy letters of the kind that I wrote, I would always see them. And whether I had a job or not for them, uh, that was the conversation we would have, that when you have these passions and the path to get to where you want to go is not clear and, 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 and there isn't a path, there's just... A jungle, there's an, and you've got to hack your way through it or hope you find the path. Um, you never know where it's going to end up, but what you do know is what you want. And you have to keep your eye on that and follow your nose, and especially when you're young, be willing to do things that are unorthodox and risky 
because when you get older, you won't do it. When you get older, you know, you'll have too many kids and a mortgage, and you won't be able to take those risks because there's, there's consequences for other people than yourself. But when you're young, it's the only time to do that. And and for people, that's why, you know, I tell my grandchildren now as they contemplate about what they should major in in college. I said, you don't know what you're going to major in. And whatever you major in, you're going to end up doing something different. <laughs> and and what college is, is a tasting party. You know, you, you go there and, and you absorb all kinds of things that are new and fresh. And you have no idea where it's going to go, but you follow your interests and you stick to your interests. No matter what anybody says... Because the truth is, especially if you know you're white, middle class, well educated, and smart, take the risk and don't worry about it. And and uh, you know, but I got, I have a a 13 year old grandson now who's not even in high school yet, and he's already thinking about uh, responding to questions about what he wants to be. You have no idea what you want to be. Yeah, and it's absurd that anyone would ask that question. Well, but they all do. The pressure yeah. on kids at an early and early age is incredible. Yeah. When I was in college, I went in wanting to become a sports journalist because uh, sports is in my background, and I really liked reading newspapers. I decided I didn't want to do that. Then I thought I maybe wanted to become a history professor. I decided I didn't really want to do that. Then I got interested in politics, thought I maybe wanted to go into politics, became disabused of that notion, then started looking at advertising and marketing because that's what some people in my family do. Um, but all along, I'd been very passionate about civil liberties issues and had an internship with FIRE. And so I'm applying to advertising and marketing jobs. And then FIRE CEO, President CEO, Greg Lukianoff calls me up and says, I have a job as my assistant. Open up. Are you interested in applying for it? And then I did. And here I am yeah, you know, exactly, years later. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and the um, But we, this would have never been part of my path. That's right. Had someone not told me, maybe you should try this. That's right. And, you know, the reason why, as I said, the answer to your question, how do you get from there to here, is a short question, but it doesn't have a short answer. The details of that answer that I've given you are critical to the content of the answer because... Which because, is that it wasn't strategic. And you could not have predicted it. You, couldn't, you can't look back on it and say any of it was purposeful except in the general direction. Which is to say you were following what you were interested in. You were following your nose, you were following your passion, and you were taking risks that were not that great, but you were taking those risks at a time when it was possible to take them without dire consequences. And, and um, uh, because those years are the only years you, you have. I mean, I f still flirted with the idea of running for Congress while I was still at the NYCLU before I had the ACLU job in 1970. Uh, by that time, I had four, chil uh, four children, uh, under the you know, seven and under. Harder risk to take. And, you know, what am I doing? How am I going to raise this money? And what if I go into debt? And how, how do I give up my job? And, and, and what if I have to go to Washington? And they're all in New York. And I have to go and they're in school. I mean, all kinds of considerations begin to constrain you. Um, and, and uh, you know, and I ended up heading up the ACLU instead of being a freshman member of Congress. But as Eleanor Norton once said to me years later, you end up having a lot more influence as head of the ACLU on the things you care about than you would have as a, as a member, as a single member of Congress. She would and, know. <laughs> and that, yeah, that's right. And that's probably right. And it's something that in 1967, 1968, 1970, I never would have believed. Yeah. Because, you know, I, 
my view was growing up that if you were interested in political change, the route to that is through uh, electoral politics, period, end of story. I had no appreciation of the impact of organizations outside the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, NGOs. Yes. Uh, and I had no appreciation of how those organizations collectively nurtured and supported movements of people outside the formal engines of government upon government. I mean, that was stuff I learned entirely while I was at the ACLU, but I did not know it before. So there was no way I could have mapped that that end game. You know, that was something that I see only in retrospect. Mm -hmm. And, And as you correctly say, the only thing that could have gotten you there was not foreseeing the particular form of the ending, but just sticking with the general direction of what was moving you and, and, and be alert to opportunities as they arose because you can never anticipate those. We're at the ACLU right now, and I realize right. we're already an hour into the conversation. <laughs> sure. Do you have a little bit more time? Yes, to keep sure. Because sure. I do want to talk about your experience fighting for the First Amendment at the ACLU. Yes. Because you come to the ACLU right after, at, as its executive director, right after Aryeh Nair left. Right. And right after the ACLU had been embroiled in the the public debate surrounding the Skokie case. Which I was deeply involved in before coming to the ACLU through my role in the NYCLU. Really? Yeah. Aryeh yeah. Um, made the good point that the ACLU had always defended, you know, sort of these right. outliers like right. the Nazis. It's right. just the, all the facts right. in the Skokie case came together to make it, you know, a headline-grabbing story. Yeah. So you assume the directorship after he leaves and after the ACLU's public profile has been risen from that case. Was the First Amendment docket your, your most important docket at that point? No. It, no. No. The... Because I, I ask you, because I, I think of the ACLU and I think of it foremost as a First Amendment organization. Because when I think of its founding documents or its first annual report, it was, you know, the fight for freedom of speech and then a year in the fight yeah, for freedom well, of speech. Well, that was, that was, the, that was the, sort of the, the historical origins of it. I mean, it grew out of the uh, anti-war movement uh, trying to resist America's entrance into World War I. Uh, it grew out of an organization called the American Union Against Militarism. And, and they were small. They were not too, not too effectual. But what they did is they organized meetings. They organized rallies. They organized demonstrations. They distributed leaflets. And every time they did so, they got busted. Because in 1917, 1918, around then, the Supreme Court had never yet in 130 years of existence ever, ever struck down a law or a government action on First Amendment grounds. Never. And so the First Amendment stood there like a beacon, but, you know, and it was supported rhetorically in some abstract way, but people who actually needed it on the ground, it was useless. I mean, Margaret Sanger got arrested every Monday and Tuesday in New York for distributing leaflets on birth control. Uh, she was a contemporary of Roger Baldwin. They, they knew each other. They, they was the same, came out of the same period. And when the American Union Against Militarism kept organizing these anti-war, uh, anti-conscription uh, meetings and rallies, 
they constantly got broken up by the cops and there was no remedy. And one of the things that they did is they realized that they needed protection, that they needed somehow to be able to invoke the First Amendment uh, to enable their political action. And so they created, within the American Union Against Militarism, something called the Civil Liberties Bureau, which was basically a unit uh, of the American Union Against Militarism. And it was, I think, the first time in American history that the phrase civil liberties was attached to an organization, no name. So it started then, the, fir the First Amendment was used as a vehicle to a different end, which yes. it was opposition to war. Which, yes. Which it wasn't it an end in itself. Right. Which it always is. Mm -hmm. Always. Whether you're talking about the prisoners' rights movement or mental patients' rights movement or the high school students' rights movement or, or, or welfare rights movement, it's always... The First Amendment is always something that is enabling and making it possible for people to pursue a political end. It's not ever a political end in itself. It can become so for people like us who end up in organizations that are devoted to defending it for other people. But, but it, its use is always in behalf. This is, this is without exception true historically. Uh, uh, until the ACLU was actually created in 1920, there is no organization that is devoted to trying to advance and protect First Amendment rights. There's only organizations devoted to other ends who need the First Amendment in order to be able to freely pursue those other ends. And so Baldwin becomes, you know, uh, appointed by the American Union Against Militarism to head up their Civil Liberties Bureau. It becomes his job to try to see if the First Amendment can be used to protect the rights of people organizing against the war. That's where, and then, of course, we get into the war. And, you know, Wilson turns around and they get into the war and, 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 and everybody closes ranks and says, well, now that we're in the war, we have to stop opposing it. And there's a big argument about, about that politically. And the American Union against militarism basically shuts down its, its opposition to the war, and in a few years it goes out of existence. Baldwin and some of his colleagues, given their experience with the Civil Liberties Bureau uh, within the American Union Against Militarism during the war, come to realize that um, no social and political change is possible in the country, especially for people who are dissenting from established positions and people who are in minority positions and people who are who are outvoted, basically, um, no movement is possible without the First Amendment. So they decide they're going to take the Civil Liberties Bureau outside of the American Union against militarism, which is sort of fading anyway and finally goes out of business. And they create an organization called the National Civil Liberties Bureau. And it's a freestanding organization, which for a couple of years functions in a probably not very effectual way because it was tiny and under-resourced. And... And then uh, this develops to the point where uh, they figure out um, that they need something more substantial and about 30 or 40 people, it's really all it was, get together in a hotel room in New York uh, one day in January of 1920 and decide to create an organization which um, in their completely illusory, delusional uh, 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 imagination they're going to defend the entire Bill of Rights 
for the entire country, all over the country, all 40 of them, in New York, without a budget. <laughs> and they really didn't have a budget no. for a long time. And that's one of the things you're often credited with, is that you made the ACLU a sustainable organization Well, it was in the sustainable before, but, but, but it, 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 it had a quantum leap of resources and reach, uh, uh, which really began with Arye's tenure, but, but, but then got, got laid low uh, in, in part because of the Skokie case, but, in, but, but mostly because of infrastructural problems in the ACLU, in my view. Um, but uh, uh, they start this, you know, and, and one of the interesting things is one of the first great cases that the ACLU takes is a First Amendment case, uh, and it's a Scopes trial in 1925. And, and of course, they lose that case. Um, for our listeners, briefly describe what happened. Huh? For our listeners, can you briefly describe yes, what happened? Yes, Well, the Scopes case was the, was the case that the movie Inherit the Wind uh, uh, describes. It's a case of, a, of the state of Tennessee uh, in, in a fundamentalist uh, revival, not unlike what's happened in this country in, in the 1980s going forward, um, uh, passes a law making it a crime to teach the theory of evolution on the ground that that's an offense to the biblical story of creation and therefore an offense to God and the belief in God. Is it possible that something is holy to the celebrated agnostic? Yes. The individual human mind. And John Scopes is a young biology teacher who's teaching the theory of evolution to his high school class, and he gets arrested for violating that law. And Baldwin, the ACLU is then, this is 1925, and the ACLU is just five years old and not, not with a lot of resources. Baldwin announces that uh, uh, the ACLU is prepared to defend Scopes, and he enlists Clarence Darrow as a volunteer lawyer to do it. And it becomes you know, famous as the monkey trial uh, and the full, the full weight of, of fundamentalist politics comes down on Scopes and Darrow and they lose that case. He gets convicted. Uh, it's never appealed because it gets, it gets dismissed uh, for some technical reason. They find him $100 and it turned out that under Tennessee law, uh, you couldn't be fined for more than fifty dollars, and so it gets thrown out in a technicality. It never gets, it never gets, um, it never gets appealed. But, but publicly and politically, it splashed all over the front pages of every paper in the in the country, and it becomes an embarrassment for the uh, for the for fundamentalist politics. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, it's fictionalized, but but essentially accurate portrayal in the movie Inherit the Wind of, of that whole thing. Uh, so, so that, uh, uh, fast forward to 1981, when uh, half a dozen states in the South passed creationism laws, not prohibiting the teaching of evolution, but requiring that wherever evolution is taught in biology classes, uh, creationism has to be taught too, which they say is a scientific alternative, which is basically the biblical theory of, of, of the biblical story of creation. And we file a lawsuit uh, uh, to challenge the first state that passes that law in Arkansas in 1981. By that time, I've been executive director for three years. 
Baldwin is still alive. He's 97 and still, you know, full of piss and vinegar <laughs> and uh, travels by subway in New York City and, you know, and, and uh, uh, so I decide um, that the press conference in which we're going to announce this lawsuit ought to be run by him, not me. And, and he, he does this press conference in which he basically says, you know, uh, we, we fought this in 1925 and I'm here still to fight it again. <laughs> you know, and we, and we win that case. Yeah. And he always used to chide me in public and saying, well, you know, he says, at the time, that Scopes case was our most famous case, and it's still our most famous case. And then I would say, yeah, Roger, but you lost. <laughs> we won this case. And we end up, you know, doing, doing that. But, but the, um, uh, all along the way, there were also, in, in addition to the First Amendment cases in the context of religious freedom, there were all the political First Amendment cases. And I want to ask you about that, because you were very involved in the Buckley v. Vallejo stuff, yes. right? Yes, later, yes. Um, but the, the, um, uh, the Skokie case, uh, Arya is completely right about that. For us, you know, as controversial as that was, it was a surprise to us that it got so controversial. We took those kind of cases all the time. We took it on behalf of neo-Nazis. We took it on behalf of Klan. We took it on behalf of all kinds of right-wing groups. We always defended everybody's free speech. Um, and Arye lays that out in his book, Defending My Enemies. Yes, right. And, and, and it was, you know, uh, my view was quite apart from the principles involved. It was a strategic necessity because if you allowed the town council in Skokie to ban people from marching through their streets with swastikas on the grounds that it was too offensive to the people who lived there, which it was, um, I mean, a lot of them were former Holocaust survivors, and it was deeply had offensive. the tattoos on their arms. Still. Yeah, and and but if you allowed the law to say that it was okay for the town council in Skokie to bar people with swastikas from marching through their streets because it was so offensive to the citizenry of Skokie, how could you then not say it was okay for the white citizens council? in Mississippi to, bland, to ban a march of Martin Luther King Jr., black and white together, because black and whites marching together in the streets of those small towns in Mississippi was as offensive. Uh, now, maybe we don't credit that. Maybe we think, you know, the, uh, the Jews in Skokie were right to be offended and terrified by the specter of people with swastikas walking on the streets, and the people in the small towns of Mississippi were wrong to be offended by, but by Martin Luther King Jr. walking or by white and black marching together. But the fact is, in terms of the law, if the principle is that any town which is deeply offended by speech can ban that speech, then the only thing that matters is who's in charge. And it can't work that way. So if you wanted to support Martin Luther King's right to demonstrate in the small towns of Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia, you had to support the right of the neo-Nazis to march in Skokie um, because the one crucial thing about all these cases is who decides. 
And, and the fact is, is that you can never let the government decide. Because once you let the government pick and choose which speech is okay, um, then you're at the mercy of whoever has government power. And as I used to say, debating the Skokie case in, in, in synagogues all over New York in those years, you tell me which people you would like to have in charge of deciding whether it was okay for you to speak. And look at the people who've been in power just in your lifetime. Look at Joe McCarthy. Look at Richard Nixon. Look at Ronald Reagan. Look at, I mean, are you crazy? I mean, if, if you give the government the power to ban speech, your speech is going to be the first speech banned. Uh, the only protection minorities have and dissenters have is a rule which doesn't allow the government to decide which speech is okay because it won't be theirs. Yeah. And people tend to imagine that they will be the ones making these decisions. But of course, people like us never are the ones making those decisions. Who's the angel in the room that you would yeah. have decide for you what books you can read, what, right. for you what movies right. you can watch? That's right. And so, so, so for me, the First Amendment... And all of those always was a strategic argument. I regarded the First Amendment not as a highfalutin doctrine of principle, but as a uh, insurance policy, and that's what it was meant to be. The people who wrote it and found, you know, two minutes after the First Amendment was was passed and ratified, they passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. I mean, and and nobody, you know. Oh, but now it was John Adams saying, saying, you know, you couldn't criticize the president. It wasn't the king of England, so it was okay. Well, it wasn't okay for the people who wanted to criticize John Adams. And the whole story about speech in America, and anywhere really, is that, as I used to sort of say half tongue-in-cheek, everybody is in favor of free speech as long as it's theirs mm -hmm. or people that they like and agree with. As Nat, Nat wrote, free speech for me, but not for thee. Yeah, I mean, and so, you know, people, there were feminists like Catherine McKinnon who thought that free speech was wonderful except for people who wanted to publish pornography or what she considered pornography because that was for her the equivalent of rape. And the anti-tobacco people thought free speech was wonderful except that they wanted to ban tobacco ads. And the, you know, the abortion, the anti-abortion people thought that speech was wonderful for them when they were picketing abortion clinics, but they were they were they thought that abortion clinic ads could be banned, and and um, uh, and the black kids on college campuses in the early '90s, um, for whom free speech was critically important because they were in a hostile environment, um, they were in favor of speech codes, and. I would go to speak to them, and I, by that time, had a well-deserved reputation as, as, as a passionate defender of racial justice and, uh, through the ACLU. And I used to say to them, you know, your supporting speech codes has got to be the dumbest political act I have ever seen in my life. I mean, if speech codes like, first of all, the board of trustees of your university are, are white. The dean is white. The president is white. The donors are white. Who do you think they're going to ban? You know, if, if, if this speech code that you say you want had been in effect in the 60s, the people most frequently banned from college campuses would have been Malcolm X and Eldridge Cleaver, not David Duke. And, and you know, the same thing happened in England when... when, 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 when the Jewish Student Union 
and, and a lot of colleges joined in, in, um, in, in a provision that banned hate speech, and that worked fine until somebody else decided that hate speech included Zionist speech. And then, you know, then what? And so the question always is, well, who gets to decide that? And the answer is, not you. Yeah. When, during your tenure at the ACLU, aside from the Skokie case, what do you think was the ACLU's most important First Amendment free speech case? And it doesn't even need to be most important. What was the one that you'll remember most? Well, the Pentagon Papers case was, was critical, uh, obviously. Uh, and the progressive case, um, the case where the government tried to ban Progressive Magazine in the, in the mid-'80s from uh, publishing a, an article on the H-bomb because they said it was going to uh, reveal secrets of the H-bomb. And what the article did was the secret of the H-bomb was that it wasn't a secret. <laughs> and and uh, there was no information in it, that, in this article, that you couldn't get from a high school physics li- library. But, you know, a lot of the, the free speech cases, and I'll get to campaign finance stuff in a second, because that was sort of unlikely uh, and, and a surprise in some ways. But... We, we filed a lawsuit at the NYCLU in the uh, 70s, which challenged a rule, a law in New York that required anybody who wanted to run for statewide um, office to not only get like 10,000 signatures on a petition, but they had to have at least 50 in every county in the state. Well, if you were a member of the Socialist Workers' Party, headquartered in New York City with a small membership and a radical reputation. In a nine-to-five job. You could get 10,000 signatures in, in one apartment building, maybe. Mm-hmm. But you sure as hell couldn't get 50 signatures in every county uh, throughout New York State. And in some counties, it would be dangerous for you to try. Um, and that was true of all the minority parties. So in effect, what that law did is it banned small minority parties, right and left, from ever running for statewide office. Not by saying so, not by saying those parties couldn't run, but by creating requirements that only affected small minority parties. So we decide uh, we're going to challenge that and strike it down. And we did challenge it, and we did strike it down. But, but in doing so, we constructed the lawsuit uh, in order to make the point to the court and publicly that this was an issue that affected across the political spectrum, small minor parties of every political stripe. So we had, we had uh, the National Renaissance Party, a, uh, a small kind of neo-Nazi party, a, 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 the Socialist Workers Party, the Socialist Labor Party. We had maybe 15 or 20 different, different parties um, as plaintiffs. Well, it came time where in order to get the lawsuit filed, you had to have an affidavit from every one of them that set forth the facts and how they were affected uh, by the lawsuit. And it was just, there were too many of them to do this one at a time. So the lawyers decided it would be a good idea to, you know, let's take a weekend, a Saturday or something and get them all into the office and, and we can prepare these affidavits and everybody can sign it at once and we'll be done with it. So get the, the neo-Nazi party. So we do, so we do that. So we have in this big room all of these people. And it was like fire and ice. I mean, 
it it one by one they're all doing the aff- their affidavits, but they're all outraged by everybody in the room except them. <laughs> and one by one, almost every one of them comes up to me uh, while the lawyers are doing these affidavits there and says, "Mr. Glasser, this is a wonderful lawsuit you're doing for our right. This is this is really great, and thank you." He says, "But why do we have to have all of those other people here?" <laughs> You know, and it was just a wonderful example of, of A, how their rights were necessarily tied together because you, you could not strike down one without striking down all, and you could not have that kind of a law except that it applied to all of them, that they were inextricably tied together, not by their politics, but by their common need for the right to pursue their politics. And, and, uh, and the other thing that was wonderful about it is how oblivious they were to anybody's right but their own. And given power, they would have denied the rights to everybody else in the room. <laughs> is that something that you learned during your tenure yes. about people's relationship to their rights? Yes. I didn't know that before. It was something that I learned at the ACLU uh, that rights were a matter of self-interest. And that if you were going to sell anybody on the importance of rights, it always had to be rooted in self-interest. The reason we have a Fourth Amendment in this country is because the colonists had a self-interest in not having the British soldiers barge into their house with their bayonets and tear up the furniture looking for violations of the Stamp Act. This was all about self-interest. One of the ironies of the Fourth Amendment is that for people like me, the Fourth Amendment, all my life has worked perfectly. I mean, none of my kids ever got stopped walking around the streets of Manhattan and stopped and frisked, even though they all smoked weed in the 70s. They never got harassed because they were white, they were middle class, they were, they were, they were in, in, in middle class neighborhoods, but everyone black that they knew did. And so one of the things that happens is is that when the only people getting searched are people who are minorities, the white majority to whom it's not happening is not even aware that there's a problem. But in the 18th century, all the colonists were affected. And and their self-interest was tied together. And they had a common antagonist, which was the British king and the British parliament, and they knew it. But in America, one of the things that's happened is that, it's ironic, but the success we've had in protecting rights for many people has resulted in making it harder to protect it for the people who are left out. So that, for example, when you win the right to abortion uh, in Roe v. Wade, uh, the states respond by passing a lot of restrictive legislation that makes it especially hard if you're poor and if you're rural and if you're young. And in the course of defending Roe v. Wade in the mid-80s, you get 500,000 women coming to Washington to march and protest and affect legislation and affect the court. But once those women's rights are secure, they don't go to Washington anymore. And the women who can't have an abortion because Medicaid won't pay for it, who are mostly poor and not white, there ain't 500,000 of those women going to Washington. And, and, and so what happens is, is they, they get isolated and left out, 
And everybody else thinks, well, the right is secure. So if my daughter is growing up, um, she has no worries about that if she needs an abortion, she can get one. If she needs contraception, she can get it. But for many women, that right doesn't work, even though Roe v. Wade stands secure. And very often, when you win rights for most people, it becomes harder to complete the victory for the people who need the rights the most. I want to, the last First Amendment question I asked is the one we've tipped our hat to already, which is campaign finance. Because even within the First Amendment community, it's a controversial topic. Uh, Martin Garbus, who we interviewed previously on this podcast, doesn't believe that money spent on politics or on political messages or in support of candidates uh, is speech. And you've uh, gone back and forth with Jeffrey Stone, who we just interviewed on this podcast on the same topic. And a lot of people think that this campaign finance issue is you know, a right versus left, progressive versus conservative issue, when in reality, they, they forget that the ACLU, you know, a civil liberties organization, has always you know, said that money spent on political message is, is speech or is expression. So quickly, <laughs> if we can. We can't. But, but, well, why, you, should, why should the, the skeptic? I'll tell you, I'll, 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 I'll give you a couple of examples instead of getting into the, into the thicket of, of the details of, of all of these cases and legislation. It's a little bit like the right to travel. Think of the right to travel. But that's an unenumerated right. No, but there's still, there's still, there, that doesn't matter. That's not, that's not, nobody is arguing that in, in the area of campaign financing. Um, nobody denies, no court, no legislature, public doesn't deny, you have a right to travel. I mean, if I want to go and go to Europe, the government can't stop me. If I want to drive to California, the government can't stop me. Uh, it's the hallmark of a totalitarian society to restrict people's travel. The right to travel is well established. But supposing I told you you couldn't spend more than $100 on traveling. You have the right, but you don't have the right to spend more than $100. You couldn't go very far. Um, supposing I told you you could only spend $500, you still couldn't go very far. The notion that by limiting the amount of money you can spend on a right doesn't restrict the right is absurd. It's, 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 it's a fantasy. I mean, if, if I'm at the ACLU and I want to take out a full-page ad to advance a civil liberties cause, where I have to spend the money to buy the space in the Times. If, if, if I'm Planned Parenthood and I want to take out an ad uh, uh, advancing the right to contraception, and I want to buy it at the Super Bowl, I have to spend money. If I want to distribute leaflets, a fundamental First Amendment right, I have to produce the leaflets. Sometimes the cost is considerable. Sometimes it isn't considerable. But you ask anybody who's ever run a political campaign, what about buttons? What about leaflets? What about travel? You can't exercise your First Amendment rights without spending money. Can't be done unless you sit around 
like you and I, in a little apartment by ourselves, nobody listening, and we have all the right to free speech we want. But, but I still need to pay $150 to get the SoundCloud subscription right. to upload exactly. it to iTunes. Exactly. Exactly. There is no way to exercise the right to free speech in an effective way without spending money for the dissemination of that speech, without spending money to make that speech audible and visible. You know, the right to free speech is not the right to sit in the closet by yourself and mutter. It, it requires you it, to be effective it means you have to get out there and reach many, many people. Otherwise, the government could let you speak all you want if you only get to speak to yourself and three people that you know. It's only when, when the speech gets to be disseminated that's a problem. There is no way to disseminate it without money. In an electoral campaign, that's even more true. Um, and it's always been true. It's not something that just became true. It's always been true. And now what people are upset about is that the severe disproportion of wealth and money in this society creates a severe disproportion of speech. They are upset about that. But giving the government the power to restrict speech is not the answer. you got to do something about the disproportion of wealth. Because that's always been true, too. I mean, I grew up in New York where the names of the governors um, were Lehman, Roosevelt, Harriman, Rockefeller and Dewey. Dewey was the only one. The others were all fabulously wealthy in, by inheritance. They didn't even make the wealth themselves. Now, did they have more access to political power than my construction worker father with his fifth grade education and no money in the bank? Of course. That was as true in 1935 and in 1940 as it is today. It's always been true. Thomas Jefferson was an aristocrat. You th ordinary working people couldn't run for president. They couldn't even vote when the Constitution was adopted. You had to own property in order to vote in 1789. So, you know, the notion that money is, has never always been tied to speech is, is ridiculous. And, and, and the remedy of not attacking the the, the gross inequality of wealth directly is a cop-out. All of these radicals who want to, who want to you know, equalize speech have to first get involved, if you really want to be radical, in, in dealing with the gross disproportions of wealth that have been made much more gross during precisely the period that the campaign finance laws have, have, have been enforced. That's number one. Number two. So the going after free speech then would just be a cosmetic fix. Well, it's worse than a cosmetic fix. And a tactical error. It, it makes it it makes it easier for the because you every single restriction that exists, people with a lot of money can get around. You know, when Gene McCarthy decided to run for president in 1968, in order to oppose Lyndon Johnson's escalations of the war in Vietnam, he was a liberal senator. This is before Bobby. Kennedy got into it. He was a liberal senator from Minnesota. Nobody knew who he was outside of Minnesota. So the first primary is in New Hampshire. It wasn't Iowa in those days. I think. So he decides to run in New Hampshire to make a, an anti-war statement. Here's his problem. He has 2% name recognition in New Hampshire. And he's running against a sitting president. 
So how does he get his message out? He can't. If you have a law that says nobody can give him more than $100, he has to be able to raise millions of contributions in order to have enough money to get name recognition. Well, where's he going to get those millions of contributions if he doesn't have the name recognition? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a circle that folds in on itself. The law to limit the size of contributions is a law designed by incumbents to protect them against insurgent candidates because it's precisely the insurgent candidate who needs the big dollars. McCarthy ends up being able to run a viable campaign in New Hampshire in 1968 because he has three people who give him a million dollars or more. Stuart Mott, uh, some guy in Massachusetts who was, I think, a shoe manufacturer, and I forget who the third one was. Without those million-dollar contributions, he has no campaign. With those contributions, he gets visibility for his message. He doesn't beat Johnson in the primary, but he surprises the hell out of everybody by coming close because his message was popular mm -hmm. in a way that nobody would have heard if he didn't have the money to spread it out. He does so well against Johnson in New Hampshire that Johnson resigns and says, I'm not running for president. It was for liberals all over America to this day one of the most seminal changed political change. There is nobody in the campaign finance side of the things who makes Marty Garbage's argument or anybody else who ever opposed those contributions to McCarthy at the time. Because it was the same thing like every other free speech thing. It was dependent on whose ox was gored. They loved that he got the message out. They weren't against it. And that's one of the reasons why McCarthy joined us when we sued in the Buckley against Valeo case. I mean, Buckley was, was, the, was the lead plaintiff, but McCarthy was in there too. And because and he understood that you couldn't have insurgent speech. You couldn't have dissenting speech. You couldn't have challenging speech in an electoral context without a handful of big contributions. Because the requirement that you make, get all your money in small chunks meant you had to have a constituency who didn't know who you were. Yeah. And you couldn't do it. Now, the other thing to be said about it is that how we got into this, how the ACLU got into this. They passed this law in 1971. I wasn't aware of it. It was sounded like, you know, a good government law. This was, it didn't sound like there were civil liberties issues involved. We weren't even, we didn't even know about the details of the legislation. The law passes, the first people who were sued by the federal government for violating that law were three old left-wing radicals who took out a two-page ad in the New York Times denouncing Nixon's bombing of Cambodia and calling for his impeachment. This is way before Watergate. So, you know, the ad was almost unreadable. It was cluttered. It went over two pages. But these, one of the three people had some money and paid for it. And one of the things they did in the ad is they listed an honor roll of senators who had voted against the bombing of Cambodia. And then they listed a dishonor roll of, and, they, and it was very critical of Nixon and Kissinger. Well, this was uh, late 71. So, you know, the 72 campaign was starting. 
And one of the things that the campaign finance law said at the time that most of us were unaware of is that, is that uh, in order to prevent um, uh, big money from affecting the, 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 the election, they made a rule that said that any money that you spend to take out an ad, say, in support of, of a candidate counts against that candidate's limits. They first limited the amount of money that the candidate can spend, and then they said they're going to count money that non-candidates spend to support the candidate or to criticize his opponent. So this ad that these three 75, 80-year-old left-wing activists who happen to have the money to take out an ad, they publish this ad, it's construed by the government as an ad in favor of, of one of Nixon's opponents who was on this honor roll of people who had voted against the bombing of Canada, who happens to be named George McGovern. And on the basis of that, they go into court and they get an injunction against these people. I mean, if there was anything that the First Amendment was designed to protect, it was the right of three people to publish an ad in a newspaper attacking the government for something that they thought the government should be attacked for. So they walk into my office at the, this is at the NYCLU. This is before, way before Buckley, years before Buckley. They walk into my office and they show me the ad and they, and I say, What's the, well, the government has an injunction against us. It says, you know, we can't publish this ad again. And moreover, they sent a letter to the Times saying that if they ever publish an ad like this again, they will, they will be subject to criminal prosecution because it violates this law. My first response was, get out of here. <laughs> Don't be crazy. I mean, if there's any, you know, no. I said, based on what? So they show me the court's decision. I read it. And it cites this provision in the then uh, Campaign Finance Act of 1971. And I have never heard of it. So I said, this can't be. And I get a copy of the law, and I read it. And sure enough, that's what it says. And I said, how the hell did this get through? You know, so we go into court on appeal to the Second Circuit, and we represent them, and we get it struck down on First Amendment grounds. A year later, less than a year later, the ACLU takes out an ad. I'm not there yet. I'm at the NYCLU, but, I, but, but, but we published the ad. Um, and and uh, because we are in a big quarrel over school integration. It's, it's, there's, there's a lot of carrying on about no busing for school integration, and Nixon is very big in this. So I take out an ad in the form of an open letter to the president urging him not to take this position <laughs> and, and that, that, you know, argue, making all the arguments I can about not only why school integration is good, but why busing is necessary and why nobody's really against busing except for integration because most of the kids in this country go to school by bus anyway. And, and, and on and on. It was just, you know. And we get the ad designed by an ad agency in New York, and we submit it to the Times. Times writes back and says, we can't publish this ad because, we were, because you criticized Nixon, and it's 1972, and it's in the middle of an election campaign. And if you criticize Nixon, unless you have his permission, um, it, you know, it counts against the, ad, the, the expenditure limitation of his opponent. I said, I have to get his permission in order to criticize him? What are you, crazy? What? 
It's the same issue that 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 that, that, that a Cambodian bombing. Uh, so, I go to the Times General Counsel, and he says, "Well, we can't we can't do this because we have a letter from the government saying that we're going to be we could be criminally." So I said, "Well, supposing we filed a lawsuit uh, challenging that, would you put an anonymous brief on our side?" They say yes. I said, "Good, let's do that." So we file a lawsuit. We win that lawsuit, and we strike the law down for the second time. This goes on over and over again, and I'm saying to myself, "This is a law that is supposed to get in the way of nasty rich folks." And the only two times it's been used so far is against these three, you know, aging radicals and the ACLU on totally legitimate, on core First Amendment speech. How can that be? And that's how we get into this issue and why, why we see it so clearly as a free speech issue. It goes on and on and on and on. They kept coming back doing it again and again and again and again in 16 different versions. Yeah. Um, and that and, and, and so, you know, when somebody like, like Fred Wertheimer of, of, of the campaign finance crowd or Marty, Car- I mean, they, they're, just, they're just being posers. I mean, you know, they're just talking about they don't like big money. I mean, you know, um, the day that Marty Garbus refuses a fee for defending his cases as a lawyer is the day I'll believe that he doesn't like big money. I mean, it, it, it's a perfect example, again, of the fact that a problem exists, which is that there's a disproportion of speech rights in the country because there's a disproportion of money, does not mean that the remedy of giving the government the power to pick and choose which, whose speech rights they will go after is the right remedy. There was a problem of crime in the 1980s. Uh, it didn't mean that getting rid of the exclusionary rule and the Miranda warning was the right remedy. There was a problem of drugs. It didn't mean that drug prohibition was the right remedy. The fact that there's a problem doesn't support the argument of every remedy that's proposed for that problem. That's a classic civil liberties issue. And everybody has their blind spot. The people who hate tobacco want to ban tobacco ads, as I said. The people who, who, who hate racism want to, want to ban racist speech. And people like Marty, uh, who, who, who don't like the disproportionate power of people like the Koch brothers, want to ban them from their speech. But they never talk about banning George Soros because he agrees with And they never objected to how Gene McCarthy got his speech out. Not one of them. So, you know, I regard it as the biggest liberal blind spot in First Amendment struggles in my entire career at the ACLU. The Nation magazine wants to convene a constitutional convention to overturn Citizens United. If they convene a constitutional convention, the Nation will be drummed out of business because they'll be the first ones attacked by the results of changing the First Amendment. Because they're a corporation. Right. As is the ACLU a corporation. As is Planned Parenthood. I mean, it's just, you know, it's insane. And, and, and it's, as, it's stupid for the same reason that the black kids who wanted the speech codes, thinking that they would be going after David Duke when they'll be going after Malcolm X. Um, uh, you are handing your enemies the tools to suppress you. And the campaign finance crowd 
is exactly in that same position. And you know, Citizens United was a great decision because if you didn't have, if it decided the other way, the ACLU speech would have been affected. And not only that, the rule that the Constitution doesn't apply to corporations would have also meant that they can come into our offices and search without a warrant. What world are they living in when they think that you can carve corporations out without even distinguishing between the corporations you hate and the corporations you support? <laughs> and think that you know the Constitution doesn't apply to them. So what does that mean? Does that mean if the FBI wants to walk in and rummage around in the ACLU files, it can? That they can go into Planned Parenthood's office and search without a warrant? That they can suppress our speech? Because they, you know, it's not, that's not a fantasy. They did it. That's what the campaign finance laws have been. If you look at the case law, that's who the government goes after. It goes after dissenters. Yeah, or unpopular. Or unpopular, yes. Unpopular speech or right. unpopular speakers. Right. The last question I want to ask you here before you go. Uh, you spent about 25 years, 24 years, as the executive director of the ACLU before retiring in 2001. Looking back on it all, uh, you brought the ACLU to towering heights, um, created affiliates in almost every, every state and many ter most territories. Um, so that now it's, you know, a household name. You know, I'm sure if you polled most people in the United States, they would say, I know who the ACLU is. What are you most proud of during that time? Well, this doesn't need to be a First Amendment answer either. No, well, no, it, it, it isn't. There, there, there are two answers. One answer is substantive and one answer is organizational. The Sometimes the organizational answers are the most important ones. That's though. right. That is correct. I've learned that as a manager myself. Yes, that's right. And that's something I had no idea of when I first came to the ACLU because mm -hmm. I was a substantive guy. I came there and I thought, well, you know, now I'm going to pursue all these substantive ends. And you have no idea that, you know, it's like a, it's like a kid growing up and deciding, you know, I don't have to live with my parents anymore. And then he, he remembers somebody has to buy the food, somebody has to cook the food, somebody has to take out the garbage, mm -hmm. you know. You can, you can eat, but you have to, you, you've got to wipe your ass too, you know. And, and so the organizational issues are, are substantive in the sense that without addressing the organizational issues of money, of fiscal responsibility, of managing a budget, of hiring and firing, without managing all those organizations. Setting issues, clear goals. You don't get the substantive work done. Mm -hmm. And you undermine the substantive work. So they're not separate, but the... Um, the things that I look back on now after the 34 years that the NYCLU and the ACLU combined, the substantive goals are I was one of a handful of people, people deeply involved in expanding the ACLU's agenda from sort of traditional First Amendment and due process issues into a range of, of uh, equality issues. Um, Inspired by Jackie Robinson, that, perhaps? That, that's right. That's where it started. That's where it started. Dealing with race, with gender, with sexual orientation. Um, that was controversial at the time. It was very controversial. Within the ACLU structure. Within the ACLU structure. Every one of these things involved a big board fight. Absolutely and right. one of the things I hear about you is you're not afraid of a fight. Well, you <laughs> know. Particularly a board fight. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. What um, a colleague of mine with whom I had had many fights uh, in the organization once said to a younger uh, ACLU person who had come in near the end of my career and says, you know, the thing with Ira is that he just loves these fights. 
And she said, no, 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 you're wrong. He hates these fights, which I always did. I always found it the most unpleasant part of the job. Uh, no, she said, he hates those fights. But if you get into a fight with him, he's going to kill you. <laughs> and uh, that was Brooklyn Street stuff, you know. Mm. I mean, it, it, the way you deal with a bully is, you know, you walk away from it if you can. But if you can't, uh, you, you know, you, you, better, you better leave him bloodied on the floor because mm -hmm. if it's not him, it's you. Um, but... The, the other substantive role was we were involved, Arya and I together actually, at the NYCLU started this, in extending traditional rights to untraditional places. So that, for example, we were deeply involved in applying the Constitution to the military. We were deeply involved in applying the Constitution to high school students, First Amendment and due process mm -hmm. rights and privacy rights. We were deeply involved in applying the Constitution to prisoners, to mental patients, uh, to welfare recipients, to foster care kids. All of these institutions were completely unprotected by the Bill of Rights as late as the late 60s, early 70s in this country. We began those fights at the NYCLU in the late 60s and the early 70s and and um, I think it's fair to say that I was one of the two people. Uh, the other one I would think is Arye, who who did that systematically and consciously. Um, and what we used to and, and we got a whole lot of criticism for it, including inside the ACLU, um, uh, because a lot of the people who ran schools and who ran mental hospitals and who ran foster care institutions and who ran welfare departments were liberals. Yeah. And they understood why we wanted to limit the police, but they couldn't understand why they, we wanted to limit them. Uh, I used to get outraged calls from some of them saying, why are you suing me? I've been a member of the ACLU for 30 years, as if that somehow justified their suspending a kid for having long hair in school or for distributing a leaflet opposing the principles suspending him for long hair. So, so the extension of the Bill of Rights protections to these untraditional places was a major expansion. It started in New York. It later spread out to the whole national organization. Mm -hmm. Getting the ACLU deeply into the fight against drug prohibition was a major thing that I was probably more responsible for than anybody else at the ACLU, which was also deeply resisted in many ways within the ACLU for a long time. Uh, so the extension of traditional uh, elements of the Bill of Rights to all these untraditional places and to all these untraditional people, extending these protections to people uh, who were victimized by skin color subjugation and gender and sexual orientation and, and who were trapped in these institutions um, like, like mental hospitals and prisons and military and high schools. Um, and, and, and welfare systems, uh, and, and extending, extending uh, the Bill of Rights into all these controversial places. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in certain areas like, the, like drug prohibition, the prisoners' rights and the drug stuff came together because mm -hmm. the, drug, the drug war became the principal feeder of the explosion of incarceration. In, in 1968, when Richard Nixon becomes president, before he declares the first drug war, Reagan did it again in 1980, there are 200,000 people in prison 
in the entire country, state and federal combined, for all crimes. By the time the drug war was going for a few years, there were 2.4 million people behind bars. And almost all of them who came out then were denied the right to vote because of felony disenfranchisement laws that had their roots in race in the post-Civil War period in the South, but then affected everybody. Every state in the country, with maybe one or two exceptions, uh, at the time I retired, still had those felony uh, laws. And so, so that, substantively, that expansion of the ACLU's traditional gender, the, the expansion of the traditional rights in the Bill of Rights to all these untraditional groups and all these untraditional places was the major substantive change uh, in the ACLU's program during those years. And that, I think, is the thing that I, I am uh, proudest of, and I was as I say, one of a small handful of people inside the ACLU who drove that change. Um, infrastructurally and organizationally, um, it is what you said. You know, when, 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 I, I, when I was growing up, I never heard of the ACLU. And when I did hear of the ACLU, it was a tiny organization that was mostly composed of lawyers, uh, most of whom were not on staff. Um, you know, they were volunteer lawyers who were in private practice, and most of the ACLU's legal work was filing amicus briefs in other people's cases. Um, and the ACLU was had had organizational presence basically in a handful of large cities in New York, in Chicago, in Boston, in L.A., in San Francisco, and a few other places like that. Eleven years after I first came to the New York Civil Liberties Union, we still nationally did not have staffed affiliates in probably 30 of the 50 states. And in some places where we did have staffed affiliates, we had one person who was basically a glorified administrator Mm -hmm. who worked for the board, who were volunteers. But um, they were called executive director, but they were not paid very much. They didn't have benefits. They, 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 They had no real substantive leadership or background. So you you would and and part of it was a was a problem with money. There wasn't enough money in the organization to fund anything else, and what money there was was mostly raised in those handful of big cities, in New York and Philadelphia and Boston and Chicago and L.A. San Francisco, and because of the way in which the organization grew up, most of the money stayed in the places where it was raised. So you had this strange situation, where. If you had enough money to hire one more lawyer and you had a choice, do I put a seventh lawyer in New York, a sixth lawyer in L.A., a third lawyer in Boston, or a first lawyer, an only lawyer in Mississippi or Alabama or North Carolina, everybody would say you put the first lawyer there where the civil liberties problems are the worst because the support for civil liberties is the least. But the way it worked by our internal rules, which had grown up without much you know, thought to the future over time, is that most of the money stayed. So you ended up in the places where it was raised. So you, if it was mostly raised in New York, you ended up with a seventh lawyer in New York, not a first lawyer in Mississippi, or a sixth lawyer in L.A., not a first lawyer in Alabama. So what you had to do is you had to change the tax code. (laughs) You basically had to restructure the rules in how the money was shared and distributed so that, so that, as you grew the money, enough of it 
went not in the places that already had most of it, but in the places that had none of it, or very, very close to none of it. Well, that was a war. Yeah. It was a war because you can't change any tax. I mean, you can't do that because, because it wasn't as if New York couldn't use a seventh lawyer. It wasn't as if L.A. couldn't use a sixth lawyer. It wasn't as if the resources were so plentiful in those states that the civil liberties agenda was easily handled. They were all under the gun. So, you know, people say, well, if I'm going to ask a resident of my city to give me $5,000, I don't want three of it to go to Alabama. Well, don't you think we ought to be putting one lawyer in Alabama before we put a seventh in our own? Yes, but. <laughs> and so it was really a civil war. It was the worst, most brutal fight of my three decades in the ACLU was to get those changes written into the law. And there, it's a long, interesting story about how we did that, which I won't, we don't have enough time to get into. But the fact is, is that those infrastructural changes, which basically grew the money, but also changed the distributive rules so that you suddenly were able to have an ACLU staffed, professionalized presence with minimum salaries and benefits mm -hmm. and pensions. You know, the pension rights didn't apply to everybody. They only applied to the big affiliates when I got there. So these were, these were huge, contentious changes which involved people giving up stuff they thought was theirs um, in complete violation of their professed commitment. You know, these were, the, these were the people who thought that we should redistribute wealth in America, but not in the ACLU. And there was a lot of hypocrisy. There was a lot of vested interests. Um, you know, changing an organization that's been around for 70 years, changing its fundamental rules that were there at the start and were there for so many years, is like changing you know, somebody's religion. It, it, it was very, very difficult. So I'm, uh, but the, 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 the reason that the ACLU is what it is today you know, which is basically a conglomerate of civil liberties with a with a professional staff presence, still not adequate, but still a professional staff presence in every state, was a pipe dream in 1978 when, when I first got to the ACLU. And it was a pipe dream for me too. And it's true that no matter how much you talk about substantive change, about bringing you know, the rights of high school students or the rights of prisoners or the rights of mental patients or the rights of black folks or the rights of women, if the right is won by a Supreme Court case or by a law that you get passed in Congress, it means nothing to people living in a small town in Georgia if there's nobody there to call when the right gets violated. And, you know, civil liberties is protected when there are people on the ground to be responsive to its violations. And you can't do that from the central headquarters in New York, no matter how well-resourced it is. And it doesn't matter how big the Washington office is. And you pass a law, and you get a Supreme Court case, and you think, oh, wow, this is great. Now we have this right. You don't have the right if you can't enforce it. And you can't enforce it unless you're on the ground. And you can't be on the ground unless you can bring resources to the places where the resources aren't. And if the, most of the money is going to be raised in a handful of places, you have to find a way to move it to where the support and the money isn't, mm -hmm. or else you don't have, you, you, you know, you violate the basic 
the basic reason why the ACLU was founded, you know, in, in those days when Baldwin said, we're here, we've started this organization to defend the entire Bill of Rights for everybody in the country. It was a, it was an, a delusional dream in 1920. It was still mostly a delusional dream in 1980. And so those changes are, I think, in addition to the substantive expansion of the agenda to protect rights in places and for people who had never before been protected, those are the two things that uh, thrill me the most about looking back on, on those years. Always fighting an uphill batter, battle there, Ira, from uh, getting into journalism to getting into civil liberties work to changing the way one of our most uh, prominent civil liberties work uh, organization operates. Uh, seems you're always trying to do things in unique in unique ways. So I, I, I realize we've gone a lot longer than I had anticipated, but this has been a fascinating conversation. And I, I told you the questions were short, but the answers weren't. Well, I prefer it that way. <laughs> I prefer it that way. I think our, our listeners are really going to enjoy what you had to well, say, good. reflecting good. on your career. So Ira Glasser, thank you for joining me today. And uh, maybe one day we'll have an opportunity to talk again. Good. I hope so. Thank you. That was former ACLU Executive Director Ira Glasser. To view a transcript of this interview, please visit thefire.org. Ira also has a book that can be found online called Visions of Liberty, the Bill of Rights for All Americans. And if you enjoyed this podcast and Ira's stories, please share it with your friends. If you can't get enough of hearing from former ACLU executive directors, please check out our previous, as forementioned, interview with Arye Nair about the Skokie, Illinois case. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show, so if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And until next time, thank you again for listening.